Well, praise the Lord, everybody. Amen. Why don't you be seated? The Lord bless you tonight. What a privilege to be in the house of worship. And I have certainly enjoyed the opportunity that I have had to be here as a part of this celebration and then um, this service tonight. I, I want to follow up quickly here in just a couple of minutes. Uh, we are traveling. Uh, I will be leaving for India on Saturday. Uh, I had some help that backed out on me and is not able to go, so I'll be going alone, which means that I'll be the morning Bible teacher, I'll be the afternoon Bible teacher, and I'll be the night evangelist. So um, I got my plate full this week, but uh, the folks that we are actually going to be uh, with in the state of Entre Pradesh, in the state of uh, Orissa, they're connected to this service tonight. Would you make them welcome right now? They're watching, they're listening. And uh, we're working with uh, two different groups there. One, one group, there's about 192 churches in their, in their group. And uh, as of October 31st, the report that they have sent me is their churches collectively so far this year has baptized 6,733 people in Jesus' name. Amen. And they have had 5,731 that have received the gift of the Holy Ghost. A great report. And so we have, uh, I have traveled to in Africa to the countries of Gambia, Uganda, Kenya, Congo, Zimbabwe, Zambia, Ethiopia, and Malawi. Uh, all of those we have, uh, we have had special services, training conferences uh, where great things are happening. I don't have time to tell you everything going on tonight, uh, but uh, just because I know that you folks are a part of what we're trying to do, then uh, just to let you know that God is doing incredible things. Uh, we are reaching also into other countries, either directly or indirectly in the country of Burundi, Tanzania, South Africa, Namibia, Botswana, Mozambique, Angola, and Nigeria. Uh, we have had probably somewhere in the neighborhood in the past four years I'm estimating, because I don't have exact numbers, so many things are happening so quickly, but in the past four years, we've probably had somewhere around a 1,000 Trinitarian preachers that have been baptized in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, we have completed three projects in India in the past couple of years, and we are uh, right now uh, finishing a third project, which will be a uh, headquarters church and a training center that we're going to dedicate while we are there in India. But we also have projects underway in Gambia, in Uganda, uh, in Zimbabwe. And we have two different major projects in Zambia. And uh, then we have other things that are in the works. They're in the planning stage and they're also in the funding stage. So I'm thanking God for what he is doing. Uh, we have great reports from what is happening in various places. Two things I'll mention very briefly. Uh, we have a bishop 
that was baptized from the country of Kenya. He was baptized last December. Since then, he has already baptized over 500 people himself and sent me a text. Go ahead. I think we ought to give God praise. Amen. Since uh, even this afternoon, he sent me a text uh, just prior to the service and was telling me about uh, a place he was at over the weekend, how that there were quite a few people uh, that were coming to God, and he is planning to baptize a number of them. We don't have an exact number yet, but a lot of things are happening. I will be going to Kenya in April to do a shepherd symposium on doctrine, and uh, he is telling me that there will be between four and five hundred Trinitarian preachers in that conference for us to preach the truth to. So needless to say, I'm pretty pumped about what God is doing, pretty excited about what's happening. We were in the country of the Congo back in August, and uh, we were told that we had 400 pastors registered. Uh, when we got there, we had over 600 pastors a day in attendance. And what I didn't know was that in the audience was the founder and overseer of a church organization with 1,300 churches in it, just in Congo alone. And uh, the, the founder is embracing the apostolic doctrine, and he was bringing in busloads of his pastors to this conference so they could be taught this truth also. So we give glory to God. We give glory to God. Thank God. Let's give God a good praise right now for what he's doing. So I'm delighted tonight to be a part of what God is doing, and I'm also appreciative to this local church and your good pastor for your burden, for the kingdom of God, the work of God, and great things are going to continue to happen and we'll continue to update you on the things that God is doing. Now, Pastor has told me tonight that I could uh, just kind of, I could, well, he, he figures that most of y'all are in holiday mode already, and uh, that you're here, you're here, and thank God for that. Uh, but I'm not expecting you to run the aisles. I'm not expecting you to, you know, the other night, uh, Brother um, Brother McDonald was preaching. He said, I'd run the aisles, but I'm too fat. And uh, I said, well, I'd run the aisles, but I'm too old. <laughs> and so I, I want to just talk to you tonight for a few minutes. Is that all right? Uh, I do have something that uh, I want to, uh, and I'm going to try to cut out some, uh, some fat out of this and maybe just give you the lean version. Uh, but I really feel like talking to you about this subject tonight. You don't need to stand. We're just going to move right into the teaching. But I want to I teach on the subject, when the worshiper becomes a king. When the worshiper becomes a king. I think that it's vitally important for all of us to remember that this is a spiritual kingdom. And that carnality is incapable of accomplishing anything of any eternal value. 
I believe that there are certain areas of church work that we can apply various principles from the secular business world to help us achieve certain goals. For instance, uh, they could be financial goals. They could be structural. They could be organizational. However, I am convinced that there are certain areas that we do not model ourselves or our work after the secular world, but we model our work after the established principles that are found in the Word of God. Paul writes like this in Romans 8 and 5, For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit the things that are of the Spirit. He said, To be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to to the law of God, neither indeed can be. And then later in that chapter, verse 14, he says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. I am convinced tonight that we are not to be purpose-driven, but Spirit-led. There's a big difference between being purpose-driven and spirit-led. I am also convinced that if we are spirit-led, then we will fulfill the purpose of God for the church. And I think the primary thing to always remember is that it being a spiritual kingdom, that we do not operate in the spiritual realm on carnal principles that we follow the Holy Ghost, that we follow the will of God. As your pastor has already mentioned tonight, about finding the will of God and working in the will of God. As a matter of fact, the scripture teaches us that he does all things after the counsel. He works after the counsel of his own will. So if I want to be where God is working, I need to find the will of God. And if I can find the will of God and get in the will of God, then I'm going to be where God is working. And, and I do believe that all of this happens in the realm of his spirit. Aren't you happy tonight that the Holy Ghost works among us? Aren't you happy the Holy Ghost operates among us? Amen. I, I am being told that in the world that we currently live in, that there's many, many churches that uh, they have not returned to their pre-COVID numbers. They have not returned to their pre-COVID uh, congregations. And many of them uh, are stating that the reason why is they feel like they can get as much at home as they did when they went to church because nothing went on at church anyway. Nothing really happened, and so they can watch it and get as much out of it. I am so thankful that there is no way that we can receive of God by online appearances or online watching like we do when we get together. When the church comes together and there's a flow of the Holy Ghost, the moving of God's Spirit, it's a lot better here than sitting at home. It's a lot better here than watching it over the Internet. You believe that tonight? Amen. And so I want to deal with that spiritual aspect. And, I, and in communicating this lesson to you, I want to contrast two men in Scripture who served as kings in Israel. 
that being King Saul and King David. A lot of times in Scripture, and I'm intrigued by this, when I read the Word of God, I often find contrast in the Word. And I've I've always enjoyed looking at those contrasts because uh, I feel like the contrast gives us a bigger picture. It gives us the whole picture. If you only see one side, you only get one view. But if you get uh, the contrast, either the positive and the negative or the right and the wrong, you better understand what God is trying to communicate. So when you look at David and Saul, the Bible first of all tells us in 1 Samuel 9, 21, Saul answered and said, Am not I a Benjamite of the smallest of the tribes of Israel? And my family, the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin, wherefore then speakest thou so to me? And then Samuel says in 1 Samuel 15 and 17 to Saul, he said, when you were little in your own sight, were you not made the head of the tribes of Israel, and the Lord anointed you king over Israel. So 9 and 21 and 15 and 17 indicates to us the fact that Saul was very much a self-conscious man. Amen. He was a self-conscious individual, conscious of who he was, where he was from, his family, the tribe, and then, of course, his own personal view of himself being little in his own sight. But when you read 2 Samuel 5 and 12, the Scripture said, And David perceived that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom over or had exalted his kingdom for his people Israel's sake. So the contrast here is that Saul was a self-conscious man while David was a God-conscious man. And there's a great difference in how a God-conscious man handles his life and a self-conscious man will handle his life. Amen. His approach to life, the way he deals with things in life is completely different in these two individuals. Now, it would appear to me that the only thing that Saul knew how to be was to be a king. The only thing he knew how to do was to be a king. 1 Samuel chapter 14 and verse 35 says, And Saul built an altar unto the Lord. So I'm going to talk a few minutes here about Saul's approach to life and the fact him being a self-conscious man found himself that the only thing he really knew how to do or to be was to be a king or to be a leader. And so this verse tells us that he built an altar unto the Lord and the same was the first altar that he built unto the Lord. Now, if you take that verse and extract it out of its setting, then you would think, this is wonderful. Here is a man who builds an altar unto God. And it is also declared that this was the first altar that he built unto God. However, there are some things that are very ironic about the fact that he builds this altar. It was not the fact that he built the altar, but it was when he built the altar. For whenever you study uh, the, the timing of the construction of this altar, it was not until somewhere between three and four years 
into his reign as the king of Israel, that he built this first altar unto the Lord. And the next thing that's very ironic is the fact that when he built the altar, it was not an altar of consecration. It was not an altar of devotion. It wasn't an altar that he built uh, out of a love and a desire to commune with God, but he built it as a result of a crisis. There was a crisis, and that was the fact that they had gone out to fight. They had not eaten. He had declared to, to the people of Israel, uh, the soldiers, that they could not eat until the evening time. And so they went out and they fought. They took possession of flocks and herds and they fell on them. They, they butchered them and they ate the meat while the blood was still in the meat, which was a violation of the word of God. And when Saul realized what was going on, then he declared, we've got to build an altar. And we've got, we've got to somehow mitigate the judgments of God upon us as a result of what we have done. Can I tell you, friend, that, that building an altar, thank God, if you've got a crisis and that's when you build it, thank God for building the altar. But we ought to have an altar already built before the crisis comes. Amen. Saul should have built an altar a long time before this problem, a long time before this trouble. And this is one of the things that I find is a failure on the part of people who are self-conscious people. And that is the fact that they don't feel it necessary to build an altar. I can do this by myself. I can live this by myself. I can walk this walk by myself. But a man or a woman who is God-conscious, you decide, I'm going to build an altar whether I need it or not. I may not have a problem, but I'm going to build an altar anyhow. There may not be a crisis, but I'm going to pray anyway. I may not be involved in trouble, but I'm going to pray anyhow. I'm going to tell you, and I, I, I'm supposed to be doing uh, teaching tonight and slowing down, but I feel what I'm saying in the Holy Ghost. Thank God for people that are so God-conscious, they are so conscious of the things of God that they will build an altar irregardless of where their life is, irregardless of what their circumstances are, irregardless of the state of life. They're going to pray. Hallelujah. They got a better job. They're still going to pray. Amen. They got a better automobile. They're still going to pray. They got a new home, but they're still going to pray because they are a God-conscious person and not a self-conscious individual. Amen. I, 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 I wouldn't call this a holy moment in Israel's history. They were just covering their bets. They were minimizing the danger caused by sin. And it was sin that was predisposed by Saul and it was practiced by his soldiers. And so therein lies the problem with that first altar. Then you'll notice in 1 Samuel 13 that Samuel had given Saul instructions to wait until I get there and I will offer a burnt offering. And the story is that Saul uh, forced himself, as he said, and I did something that I know I should not have done. I should have 
I should have waited on you, but uh, I was worried that the people were going to be scattered, and I was worried that the enemy was going to come upon us, and I needed to make supplication to God. So I forced myself, and I offered a, a burnt offering, and Samuel said, You've done very foolishly. You've not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now would the Lord have established your kingdom upon Israel forever. But now thy kingdom shall not continue. Listen what he said. The Lord has sought him a man after his own heart. Saul, you got an issue here. You're so self-conscious about your position. You're so self-conscious about who you are and what you are and, and the position that you're holding that you will even, you're willing to step across the line and do something that transgresses the word of God and the law of God. He said, so I've decided I'm going to go look for a man that's God conscious. I'm going to look for a man that, that, that is after my own heart and I'm going to let that man lead my people. All of this is telling us that what God really needs in this kingdom are God-conscious people. Amen. It's not about us. It's about him. It's not about our real, truly, it's not about our life. It's about him. Why do we come to church? We don't praise him. We don't worship him because he needs worship. He doesn't need anything. He is a God that has need of nothing, but we need to worship. We need to praise him. It's so, so when I read this about how that he, crossed the line, and he offered up a, 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 a burnt offering that was not his to offer. Uh, he actually left his position, and he, he uh, violated spiritual authority, and he took on the position of the preacher. I'm, I'm really convinced that it was not that particular occasion where all of this started. I think it all started way back when he was hunting for his father's uh, animals, his mules, and uh, and he went to where Samuel, the prophet of God, was. When he got there, uh, of course, God had everything orchestrated. But I want you to notice what happens whenever he is with Samuel. First Samuel 9, 22. Samuel took Saul and his servant and brought them into the parlor and made them sit in the cheapest place among them that were bidden, which were about 30 persons. This is Saul and his servant. And Samuel said to the cook, Bring the portion which I gave thee, of which I said unto thee, set it by thee. And the cook took up the shoulder and that which was upon him and set it before Saul. And Samuel said, Behold, that which is left, set it before you and eat. For under this time hath it been kept for thee since I said I have invited the people. So Saul did eat with Samuel that day. Two significant things in this passage of Scripture. Number one, Samuel took Saul and put him in the chiefest place among them. Who do you think really belonged in that place? It was the prophet of God. It was the man of God that belonged in that position. And when you read Leviticus chapter 7, you also discover that the shoulder was that part of the animal that was reserved for the Levitical priesthood, for the prophet, for the preacher, the man of God. And so here what we have is, I believe, the very first 
test of Saul's life. He went in and he sat where the preacher sat and he ate what the preacher ate. Amen. He sat where the preacher sat and he ate what the preacher ate. So it appears to me, that's in chapter 9, so when you get to chapter 13, it would appear to me that his attitude was, well, I've sat where the preacher sat, and I have eaten what the preacher ate, so I guess I can offer the burnt offering. Ah, hallelujah. I want to tell you tonight, friend, there will, no, there will not ever be a time in your walk with God that you will ever be able to take the place of the pastor in your life. Well, that was quiet, but it was right. There will never be a time that, that now God might let you sit where he sits and he might let you even partake of what he eats, but you've got to be careful that you don't let that go to your head to a point where that, let me give you another illustration so that, that you more clearly understand. Israel is coming from the land of Egypt and they are, they are now about to engage in a battle with the Amalekites. And so Moses goes up on the mountain with, with Aaron and Hur and they are on the mountain and in the valley is Joshua with the armies of Israel and there's a battle going on. And as long as Moses holds his hands up, then there was victory on the part of the Israelites. But whenever his hands began to fall, there was defeat on the part of the Israelites. The Amalekites began to win the war. And so Aaron and Ur began to put these two things together and say, you know what we better do? We better hold his hands up. It's evident to us that when his hands are in the air, then the people of God are going to have victory in the valley. Here's the key. Here's what you need to understand, that you've got two men who are on the mountain who see the battle from the perspective of the preacher. Everybody else is in the valley fighting the battle, fighting the, 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 the fight. But they are on the mountain and they see the battle from the perspective of the preacher. And every now and then, and God knows that we need men in 2023 that can stand with their pastor. Can I just go ahead and teach what I feel here tonight? Can I preach what I feel here tonight? That we need men that will stand with your pastor. That, that even can be in a place where they can see the battle. They can see what's going on from his perspective. But not reach a point where that it goes to your head to think that I stood where he stood. I ate what he ate. I sat where he sat. And now I can do his job. Amen. I travel across Pentecost. Not just in America, but around the world. And we're in dire need of men who can stand and hold the hands of the ministry up. Without becoming arrogant and egotistical and feel like that, well, we can do his job. Nobody else's hands could be held up and the victory be won. Only Moses' hands. So here's what you find, and, and I want to quickly touch on this, and I'm going to move on. But what you're going to notice is down the road, uh, whenever Moses goes up on the mountain, 
uh, to get the, uh, the tablets, to get the law of God, that when he goes up, the people come to Aaron and say to Aaron, make us a God. We don't know what happened to this preacher that God put over us, so make us a God. And so it was that Aaron overstepped his boundaries. Aaron uh, created, formed uh, a golden calf, and they worshiped. And then down the road, you also notice that it was a time uh, in, in, in uh, Myram and Aaron that the Bible said that they, they, they uh, uh, contended with Moses over his Ethiopian wife. And in that family argument, they overstepped their boundary and said, are you the only one God talks to? And when they said that, God said, y'all come down here to the tabernacle. We're going to talk about this. And before it was over with, Myram had leprosy. They had to put her out of the camp for some days. But you, you notice that there was an inclination on the part of, of Aaron to do things that he was not allowed or permitted to do. The problem with that is it affected his children. It affected his own boys who, by the name of Nadab and Abihu, that went into the tabernacle and offered up strange fire unto God. You have to understand that the strange fire was not fire that came from outside uh, uh, in the camp. They, they used the censer. They got the coals from off the altar. Here is why it was called strange fire. It was strange fire because all the way through Scripture, up until that time, it was Aaron and his sons. Aaron and his sons. His sons could minister in the tabernacle as long as they did it under the authority of their father. But now they're in the tabernacle doing their own thing, offering up the incense, offering up strange fire. What is strange fire? Strange fire is an offering or it is worship that is offered up to God out from under the umbrella of spiritual authority. Hallelujah. Ooh, I, I, I know I'm trying to pack too much in this tonight, but this has got a hold of me right now. I, I want to tell you, you got to be careful when you're worshiping God. You, and when you're worshiping God, there needs to be a spirit of submission in your heart. Submission to the Word of God. Submission to the Spirit of God. Submission to the pastoral authority that's in your life. Because you could be guilty of offering up strange fire. That's what incense was. Incense represents our prayer, our praise, our worship. That's what incense in Scripture represents. And they were offering incense out from under the umbrella of spiritual authority. That's why it's so important. If you're going to run the aisles, make sure you got it right with God. Make sure you've got it right with your pastor. Make sure, oh, hallelujah. Somebody shout amen. You say, it sounds like you're glorifying the position of the pastor. No, I'm not glorifying it. I'm just telling you what the reality is in God. If we don't have authority among us, if we don't have spiritual authority in our life, we can find ourselves running amiss of the will of God. So Aaron's two boys were slain. Fire fell from heaven, killed both of them. They were acting like their daddy. What we do will affect our children. It appears to me that 
that Ur did not take on the same attitude. By virtue of the fact that it's silent in Scripture, you will notice in Exodus 31, 2, 3, 4, and 5 that there was a man by the name of Bezalel who is the son of Uri, the son of Ur of the tribe of Judah. He was filled with the Spirit of God in wisdom and in understanding and in knowledge and in all workmanship to devise cunning works. Here is a man that God used to do a tremendous work in the tabernacle. Who was his grandfather? His grandfather was the man that stood on the mountain and helped hold the hands of the preacher up. Help, help have victory in the valley for the people of God. Can I challenge us tonight to understand that we can't get a Saul spirit on us. We can't get an Aaron spirit on us. We need an Ur spirit that says, I want you to use me wherever I can be used, and I will stay in my place. I will remain in my position. I will be faithful to the place that God wants me to serve in. Amen. Thank God for men in a church that can hold the hands of their pastor up, that can see the battle from his perspective and still remain faithful in their position. Thank God. Somebody say amen. All right, I'm trying to hurry. Everybody say turkey. Hallelujah. Maybe it's primary up for you. I don't know. Now, Saul is commanded to go out and fight the Amalekites. And when he goes out to fight the Amalekites, he's told to kill everything, destroy it all. He's, a God he's not a God-conscious man because if he would have been God-conscious, he would have done exactly what he was told to do. But he was a self-conscious man. And whenever he came back, Samuel said, well, did you do what God? Oh, yeah, I obeyed God. He said, then what's the lowing of the cattle? What's the bleeding of the sheep? What's all that that I hear in the background? Because I'm telling you, friend, it doesn't matter how much you stand up and tell everybody how much you have lived for God. There's always a background noise that is undeniable. <laughs> I'm sorry. I know this is supposed to be a Thanksgiving service, but I'm just doing what I feel. And so Saul, Samuel said, what's that all about? And he said, well, he said, I brought back the best of the cattle. I brought back the best of the sheep because I wanted to offer up sacrifices unto God. And here is Samuel's response. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. Why did Samuel say that obedience is better than sacrifice? Because in sacrifice, there can still be the element of self-will. In sacrifice, you can offer what you want to offer. And do what you want to do. But you, the difference in that in obedience. In obedience, self-will is completely extracted from the equation. 
When you are obedient, it removes self-will. It no longer is about your will. As long as you are self-conscious, it will always be about your will. It will always be about how much you want to do, how much you want to worship, how much you're willing to give, how much time you're willing to give, what you can offer to God. It's always going to be based on what your own personal will is. But whenever you find yourself being obedient to God and obedient to the will of God, your yourself. Amen. Your own personal will means nothing any longer. I'm sold out to Jesus. I'm, com I'm committed to his word. I am committed to the will of God. So I don't care what I have to do. It doesn't matter what it looks like to anybody else. I am focused on being a God-conscious individual. We know that he killed 84 priests of the Lord. So all of these things I've said about a man who is self-conscious, a man who only knows how to be a king. He knows how to be a king, and that's all he knows how to be. But in the middle of all of this, God sends Samuel to Bethlehem to anoint David as the next king over Israel. And so now we start seeing what happens to a man who has never been a worshiper. He's only been a king. The Bible tells us that in 1 Samuel 18, 10 and 11, it came to pass on the morrow that the evil spirit from God came upon Saul. He prophesied in the midst of the house, and David played with his hand as at other times, and there was a javelin in Saul's hand. And Saul cast the javelin, for he said, I will smite David even to the wall with it. And David avoided out of his presence twice. You got to understand something. There's a church service going on here. David is playing as unto the Lord. And in the middle of all of this worship that's going on, Saul has a javelin in his hand. Because a man who has never been a worshiper, and the only thing he knows how to be is a king, then the only thing he knows how to deal with properly in trouble is with a javelin. Hallelujah. We have too many people that bring javelins to church because the only thing they know how to be is a king. They've never learned how to be a worshiper. All the time that Saul was busy being a king, David was busy being a worshiper. He was learning the art of obedience while watching his father's sheep. Why was he watching his father's sheep? Because his father told him to go watch him. He was being obedient. He had a spirit of obedience about him. And, and, and so what you find is when he's down on the battlefield in 1 Samuel 17 and Saul is questioning him about his ability to go out and fight the giant, his testimony was this. Your servant kept his father's sheep and there came a lion and a bear and took a lamb out of the flock. I went out after him, I smote him and delivered it out of his mouth and when he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and I smote him and slew him. David did not get up that morning looking for a lion to kill. He did not get up that day looking for a bear to kill. You know what he got up planning to do? Watching his father's sheep. 
taking care of the lambs. And whenever the, when the, the lion came and took a lamb out of the flock, when David went out, he did not go out to kill that lion. He went out to save the lamb. Amen. We have far too many. Can, can I talk? If, if, you're a, if you're a young preacher, listen to this old preacher here tonight, all right? I think I've found a recent age I can say a few things. Let me say to some young preachers here tonight, don't run around looking for some great, grand, great grandiose thing to do for God. Let me tell you what you ought to be doing, saving lambs. Save some lambs. And in the process of saving a lamb, you might get a chance to kill a lion. But don't go looking for lions to kill. Don't go looking for bears to kill. Go look for lambs to save. The reason why David didn't run from the lion and the bear is because of the fact that he was being obedient to his father to look out for the welfare of the family's holdings. Here is a man now that's down at, at, at the battlefield in 1 Samuel 17. He is not there to fight Goliath. He doesn't even know who Goliath is. He's never heard of him. He has to ask, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? And so it was that they indicated who it was, told him who it was. And you have to understand why David was there. He was not there to kill a giant. I'm sorry, but I got to tell you that we are not given the responsibility of looking for giants to kill. If you're going to use the proper presentation of this, understand why David was on the battlefield. He was on the battlefield because his father said, take these bread and cheese and go down there and check on your brother. Go see how your brothers are doing. And while he was checking on his brothers, he got a chance to kill a Goliath. You see, there's two different aspects to this. And that is, we need to either be saving lambs or checking on our brothers and sisters in the kingdom of God. Oh, hallelujah. Come on, we got a full-time job doing that. We got a full-time job just making sure that our brother's doing okay, our sister's doing all right. There's something about a God-conscious man or woman living for God that they're concerned about the lambs and they're concerned about their brothers and their sisters in the kingdom. I don't know how you feel, but I thank God for the days that I had a telephone call from someone that said, I don't know what's going on in your life right now, but I feel to tell you in the Holy Ghost that God's going to work it out, and here's how God's going to work it out. Thank God for somebody that knows how to check on their brother, somebody that knows how to check on their sister and make sure that everything is all right. Let's give God some praise right now. David had a good relationship with the ministry. Whenever Saul threw a, threw a javelin at him, David fled and he escaped. He came to Samuel, the prophet of God, and he told him everything that Saul had done and he and Samuel went and dwelt in Naoth. And we don't know how long he was there, but I do ask, have to ask the question, I wonder what it was that Samuel and David talked about. Or I wonder what kind of 
of a of advice or counsel that that Samuel gave to David. I wonder if maybe Samuel said to David, David, don't learn the ways that make kings go mad. Don't learn the ways that want to cause a man to pick up a javelin. I want to tell you, friend, I get I get afraid of somebody. I get scared of somebody who's always walking around with a sword in their hand, always looking for a conflict, always looking for a fight. I want to tell you now, there's other ways to solve problems than with a fight. There's other ways to solve problems than with a sword. Jesus told Simon Peter in the garden, put your sword up. There's another way to fight this battle. Sometimes it takes a Calvary. Sometimes it takes a crucifixion to get the victory. It don't always take a sword to get the job done. I'm just telling you, friend, sometimes you got to be willing to be crucified to get the victory. Crucifixion might look like defeat at first, but you give it some time, and there'll be a Pentecost. Hallelujah. Somebody say praise the Lord. David, when he ran on another occasion, he went to the house of God, but he was running for his life. And while at the house of God, he was given hallowed bread to eat. He was given a sword to fight with. Amen. He was a man that had a great relationship with the ministry. Then we notice that there was a day that David had a desire to build a house for God. And the prophet told him, said, do everything that's in your heart. But that night when the prophet went home, the Lord said, you told him wrong. He's a man of war. He has shed much blood. Go back and tell him he can't build the house, but the son after him is going to build it. Whenever David got the word from the prophet, you know what David did? He got up, went to the house of God, and he found him a place to pray. And he said, who am I, O Lord, and what is my house that you have brought me hitherto? David could have handled that situation a lot different. Saul killed 884 prophets of God. David only had one that told him, you can't do what you want to do. And you know what he did? He reverted to his roots. Because a worshiper who becomes a king will always, in the time of trouble or struggle or problems, he'll go back to his roots. When the only thing you've ever learned how to be is a king, the only thing you're going to know how to deal with problems is with a javelin. But when you're a worshiper first before you were ever a king, and you're trying to get answers, and you're trying to find direction, and you're trying to settle your heart and get peace in your heart, you're going to go back to being a worshiper. You're going to go back to a prayer room. You're going to go back to talking to God. You're going to go back. Praise the Lord. I know this is not a premarital counseling session tonight, but can I offer some advice to some young ladies sitting in here? If, you are, if you're looking for a husband, don't look for a king. Look for a worshiper. 
Because if you get a husband who becomes a king or a leader of your home and he's never been a worshiper, the only thing he's going to know how to deal with problems in the home is going to be with a sword or a javelin. But you get a man who you found him in the altar. You found him in a prayer room. You found him as a worshiper first. Then you're going to find a husband that when there's problems, he's going to go back to the house of God. He's going to go back to worship. He's going to go back to praise. I want to tell you, we need leaders among us that are worshipers first. I said we need leaders that are worshipers first. He went to the house of God. And he said, all right, God, since I'm not going to be the man to do the job, then I'm going to help the man who does build the house. What an attitude. Because that's a God-conscious man. There's two things here I want you to notice. The prophet of God, first of all, told him, you can. And he came back the next day and said, I missed it. David had enough about him to give the man of God a little room to be wrong the first time. Think about it. He had enough tolerance. He had enough ability that he could give the preacher enough room to be a man and miss it and then come back and say, I told you wrong last night. I prayed last night. God talked to me last night, and here's, the, here's what God wants. This is the will of God. Second thing you're going to notice here is that David knew how to take a no. You see, you never prove what you are when someone says yes to you. You only prove what you are when someone says no. Oh, pastor, I got this absolute great idea. I want to do this. I think it'll be great for our church. I think it's going to, I think it'll just be a great blessing. I think a lot of good things are going to come as a result of this. And your pastor's standing there saying, hmm, I don't think so. Because every now and then your pastor has got to be enough of a leader that he knows how to say no. that he can't get overwhelmed with sympathies or overwhelmed with emotions, but that he looks at the big picture because he's got the macro picture, not just the micro. He's got the macro. He's looking at the whole, uh, the whole church and understands that there's some things that will work and some things that won't work. And when he says no, you prove what you are and how you handle a no. If you pick up the javelin, then you prove you're a self-conscious individual. And you're more worried about your feelings and your feelings being hurt than you are anything else. But if you're a God-conscious individual and you, he says no, then you say, well, I thought it was a good idea. I guess it wasn't such a great idea. So I'll just go back and worship God. Maybe, maybe my idea didn't come from God. Maybe my idea came out of my own spirit. Oh, hallelujah. I got to hurry. It's 8.54. I'm going to try to be, get done by, by, by 9 o'clock, okay? 
I'll try my best. But I may be like my father-in-law, who many, many years ago was preaching a tent revival, and the police came out and said, look, we've got too many, we've got too many complaints, and so you're going to have to shut this down at 9 o'clock. Done. So he said, okay, no problem. 9 o'clock the next night, he shut it down, closed his Bible, walked away from the pulpit, and people started falling on the altar, praying, talking in tongues, and the policeman walked up and said, I thought you said you was going to shut it down. He said, I did. I shut mine down at 9 o'clock. He said, now if you want to shut God down, you just go ahead. <laughs> so, so I've already lost a minute right there telling you that story. So, so here is, here is one, a couple of the uh, points, and I'm gonna, I am going to quit. But, but when David sinned by, by, by committing adultery with, with Bathsheba and then having her husband killed, then there was, there was fallout from that. There was problems with that. And one day the preacher came to him, gave him a parable, and then pointed his finger at him and said, you're the man. When David said, oh, we're going to bring judgment on this guy. We're going to take care of this situation. And the prophet had to say, you are the man. And then, and then whenever David, David uh, repented, uh, the prophet said, God has forgiven you. And then the child died as a result of it. The child was not permitted to live. And when the child died, I want you to notice what it says in 2 Samuel 12 and 20, that David arose from the earth. He washed and he anointed himself and changed his apparel and came into the house of the Lord and he worshiped. He worshiped. What did he do? He went right back to the things that he knew best. He went right back to worshiping and magnifying his God. He went back to his roots. What I'm trying to talk about tonight for a few moments is that when a worshiper becomes a king, his leadership is always God-centered. His leadership brings glory to God. And when there's ever a situation that rises, he reverts right back to his roots. He goes back to worship. He goes back to prayer. He goes back to being in touch with God. When Absalom conspired, David had to flee the city. Absalom died in the aftermath of Absalom's death. Before, as, as David was leaving the city of Jerusalem, when, when Absalom and his men basically were driving him out, they brought the ark of God to David, and they said, here, take the ark of God. And, and, and David said, no, take the ark back in there. I'm not gonna, I, I am not going to endanger the welfare, the spiritual welfare of the people of God. You take the ark back in the city, and if God is pleased, if I find favor with God, he'll bring me back to that ark. I'm not going to take that ark with me. And so, again, he's a God-conscious man. And so when you read Psalms 122 uh, and 1, uh, this is a verse that we often use in promoting coming to the house of God. But you have to know that when this verse was written, this is when David was being told, let's go back to Jerusalem. After Absalom was killed, the people that compiled the chronological Bible put this psalm right when Absalom is killed and David's going back to Jerusalem. And here's what he said. I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house 
of the Lord. David does not say, I was glad when they said, let's go back to the throne room. Let's go back to power. Let's go back to position. Let's go back to royal robes and a golden scepter and a golden crown. He said, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Because here's a man who was a worshiper before he was a king. And finally, oh no, two finalies here, okay? Two finalies. Hallelujah. I, I have, I, can, I, can I just take another couple of minutes and finish this? I, I've tried to cut some of the fat out. I really have. But, but whenever, whenever David got the ark of God and brought it back after it had been away from the city and he's returning uh, with the ark of God, he's out in the city and he is dancing before the Lord with all of his might. He is robed with, with, with linen garments, and he's among the common people. And when he gets home that night, and he, and he comes into the house where Michael, the scripture said, and Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David. I always wonder why they're called the daughter of Saul. Why didn't it say Michael, David's wife? Apparently, she was acting more like her daddy than she was her husband. But whatever the case is, uh, whenever he came in the door, she said, how glorious was the king of Israel today who uncovered himself today in the eyes of the handmaidens of the servants as one of the vain fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David looked at Michael and said, let me tell you something, woman. It was before the Lord. It was when I was a worshiper. It was when I was singing songs. It was when I was writing songs that God chose me before I I was ever a king. God shows me when I was a worshiper. And I want you to understand something. I'll be more vile next time. I'm going to be quicker to worship. I'm going to be quicker to praise him. You know what David understood? David understood there's a time to be a worshiper and there's a time to be a king. <laughs> Hallelujah. Thank God for the way God blesses us. And if you tonight are a business owner, if you're a, if you're a supervisor, if you're a manager, if you have a CEO position, doesn't matter what position you serve, but when you drive up in the parking lot of this church, you got to take your king's crown off. you got to lay your royal robes aside. You've got to lay a crown aside, amen, the golden scepter, and you got to put on the garment of praise because when we walk in here we don't need kings we need worshipers we don't need kings we need worshipers people that know how to praise God you can remain standing when David was sitting on the throne he asked the question is there anybody left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. Someone said, yeah, there's a boy by the name of Mephibosheth. He said he's lame in his feet. The nurses dropped him when they were running for their life. And he's been lame. He can't walk on his own. He said, go get him and bring him here. He said, I want to show kindness. I'm going to show kindness 
to those of Saul's house. Because you see, worshipers look for ways to be a blessing even to those who have stood against him in times past. The worshiper will still look for a way to be a blessing. Hallelujah. Mephibosheth came in the house and David said, Mephibosheth, I want you to come to my table and I want you to sit at my table. He said, Mephibosheth said, I can't even walk. I'm lame in my feet. But David said, that's all right. Just come on to the king's table. Because when you get to the table of the man who's always been a worshiper, but now he's a king, He wants you to put your feet under his table because when you get your handicap, when you get your weakness, when you get your struggle of life under the king's table, you look like everybody else. Worshippers don't look at people the same. Worshippers don't look at people because they've got handicaps or they've got weaknesses or they've got problems. Worshippers find a way to cover and to give them a place. Who I feel Holy Ghost in this place. I don't know how you feel. I know how I feel tonight. I don't feel worthy to wear the crown in his midst. In the presence of the King of kings and the Lord of lords, I don't feel worthy to wear a crown. I don't feel worthy to wear a royal robe and a golden scepter. I want to just put on the garment of a worshiper and say, I thank you for what you've allowed me to be in your kingdom. But here I am, Jesus. I want to be conscious of you more than I've ever been of anything in my life. Do we have any worshipers in the house? Is there anybody that'll put your crown down for a few minutes and put your royal rope down for a few minutes and you'll walk down this aisle and you'll lift your hands and say, Jesus, help me to always go back to my roots of being a worshiper. Help me to always go back to the roots of being the one that lifts my voice in praise and in adoration. Oh God, I'm gonna lay, I'm gonna lay my royal robe down. I'm going to cast my crown down and I'm going to worship you. Anybody here tonight want the Lord? If, if, if you're God conscious, you're going to thank him tonight for his blessings. It's a time of thanksgiving. It's a time to be a worshiper. Lift your voice, everybody. Lift your voice, everybody. Praise him. All of my
to you our worship and our praise. To you, I love you, Lord. Hallelujah. Let me be a true worshiper that worships you in spirit and in truth. We come to you tonight thanking you for the truth that sets free. Hallelujah. And we bring our worship to you in every part of our life, our action. Hallelujah. What we say, what we do, we exalt the name of the Lord and give to you praise. Hallelujah. Because we know it's going to bring us to a proper conclusion and end hallelujah it's the right one it's following your anointing and your spirit and your ability and we give to you worship and praise hallelujah 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 thank you lord you know what's fascinating and interesting is that a self-consciousness the end result of a self-conscious attitude of saul leads him to the witch's house Troubled in spirit, self leads you that direction. It tends that direction. But the end result of David's God consciousness becomes wrapped up in a messianic understanding of Jesus Christ, who is the Redeemer that is closely connected to the line of David's kingship. Jesus was a worshiper. <laughs> Hallelujah. And the end result is God manifested in the flesh that brings to us Calvary. Praise God. I want to be a true worshiper. Hallelujah. Praise God. We need to end this service tonight by making a commitment. I'm going to be a worshiper. Hallelujah. I'm not going to be a spectator. I'm going to be a participator in the things of God. And through my worship and through my praise, there's going to be an atmosphere that is created that brings other people to the king's table. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise God. Come on. Let's clap our hands and thank the Lord together. I love you, Jesus. I praise you. Woo. I magnify you, Lord to you thanks and praise you for your greatness and your goodness hallelujah 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 amen thank you brother bass tonight my goodness good stuff hallelujah good stuff praise god as we stand in the front here tonight like we typically do on a monday night prayer service we need to pray for several requests we need to pray for sister sue smith God continues to strengthen her. Manuel and Nicole, I was told, was in an accident. I don't know the extent of that, but we need to pray for them. We also need to continue to pray for Giovanna Forsyth, who's trying to overcome some complications, was in the hospital and is home. We want God to touch her. George Cavanus, a request for him, had uh, some symptoms today, and they're trying to figure out what all of that is. If you have a request, you see these that are projected here tonight, amen, all of these, and if you have a request that you would like to raise your hand, amen, let's join together in unity, and let's pray and ask for God's strength and ability, hallelujah. We speak the name that is above every name. 
We ask God that you would cover and your anointing would touch and healing and virtue would flow to every petition that we bring to you. You're a God that responds to everything that we come to you with, maybe not on our time, but it is in the perfect will of God. So we bring that to you and we know that you're a king and a Lord over all things, both great and small. We speak faith tonight in unity, collectively, corporately, and we ask God that there would be a, a, an anointing that is felt beyond this building and this place. In Jesus' name, we say, in Jesus' name, we say, let there be healing and anointing, and we will be careful to give you thanks. Before we leave tonight, and we have a week of thanksgiving, let's thank the Lord for every blessing, his goodness, his anointing, his power. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Praise God, praise God. Amen, amen. What a great weekend and a spillover. Amen. Have a great week this week of Thanksgiving. Hallelujah. Have a great week of Thanksgiving. Enjoy the blessings of the Lord, the goodness of the Lord. Spread the word, if you will, to some that you might know that might not get the message that there is no service tomorrow night and there's no schedule until Sunday morning. We'll see you Sunday morning. God bless you.